I'm Divya Shekhar and this is from the bookshelves of Forbes India. Our guest on today's episode is an engineer who never really practiced engineering. He has an MBA in finance and marketing and was the first member of his family of civil servants to join the private sector, only to find himself years later helming one of the biggest social and philanthropic efforts in the country and in the world. Anurag Bihar is the CEO of the Azim Premji Foundation that has been working in the space of education and now healthcare. In his new book, A Matter of the Heart: Education in India, he shares a collection of essays that takes us to schools in some of the most remote villages in India. There are teachers who use films and other innovations to teach concepts to kids. There are parents who move their children from a private school to a government school in which they studied out of a sense of community and belonging. And there are also children who show heartwarming wit and wisdom. Behar was the first vice chancellor of the Azim Premji University. He also played a key role in drafting India's national education policy 2020 and leads a large organization of people working across multiple districts in the country. He says that his book tells stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary work. It's a narrative that also throws light on the struggles for survival at these schools, existing policy and infrastructure issues, but at its core, the book is about the voices of people that are life affirming and insightful. We spoke to Behar about his life, his book, and his career. Listen up. Mr. Behar, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. Thank you, Divya. Thank you so much. And uh, I wanted to start uh, the discussion by, uh, you know, asking you about your journey so far. As in, I've I've read uh, that uh, you know you you were the first person from your family, perhaps, to to join the corporate world. So, if you could tell us something about where you started from. <laughs> <laughs> that's true you know that's true and uh, no my i grew up uh, in uh, bhopal or mostly in bhopal i can't say i grew up in bhopal but mostly in bhopal and uh, when i grew up and perhaps even today uh, but a lot more when i grew up uh, you know if you didn't think too much about what you will do in life you would end up doing engineering and medicine if you were fortunate enough to get in right so i didn't give much thought to what i would be doing and because everybody was doing engineering and medicine so i said i'll do engineering went into an engineering college and then uh, uh, at the end of the or towards the end of the college again i didn't give much thought as to what i wanted to do the only one thing that i was clear about was that uh, i didn't want to go to the united states because when i was graduating most of uh, my friends uh you know other engineering college students uh, very many would go to the states to do their masters and you know that's how you you're familiar how such a large techie population sort of develop in those days right? right but that's the one conscious choice i made that i will not go to the states i'll stay in india but then beyond that again i sort of drifted and drifted along and uh, if you're not going to the us what do you do so you do an mba so i did an mba once you do an mba what do you do you get a job right so yeah. I, i took a job and that is your right you know that i think uh, not just in my immediate family but uh, i would say uh, in a reasonably extended part of my family i was the first person to join the corporate world the private sector 
almost all of my family was uh, in some way or the other public service, uh, civil servants, or maybe a couple of lawyers and uh, doctors, but that's it, you know. Uh, so I grew up in a house where uh, my father, who was an IS officer, uh, however, he was one of those IS officers who spent most of his career uh, in the social side. So education, tribal development, and uh, most of his career from 77 onwards in actually school education, which is much of what I do today. Yeah. So I did grow up. I did grow up in a household which was full of books and people and dialogue and discussion and debate about school education. Uh, many of the people who have played very important roles in school education in the country, they have been uh, some of them have been my friends from my childhood. Of course, they were much older than me, uh, but very many of them I have known them from my childhood. So I did grow up. I mean, it's you know to use a reasonably close analogy, it's like a you know if. A, uh, a businessman's son or daughter grows up in a certain kind of a household where you're talking business on dinner table and your friends are business people who understand, right? Or, or for instance, for that matter, a cricketer's or a footballer's daughter, right? How they grow up. So much like that. So yes, absolutely. I mean, 100%, my life has been shaped by what uh, I experienced and grew up with in my childhood. So yes, I was indeed uh, the first person to get into the private sector. And then, uh, I mean, as life would have it, uh, you know, I sort of went back and I'm here in the social sector or the or in a public service of sort. So listeners, Mr. Behar had joined Wipro in the 90s when the Wipro building was the first of its kind for a company setting up in Whitefield, which today is a prominent IT hub in Bangalore. He says that he had offers from companies with more well-paying jobs, but he decided to join Wipro. Among other reasons was the fact that this was a company where he, and I quote, would not have to pay a bribe. So Mr. Behar, what were your initial days in Wipro like? I joined a part of Wipro, which was, or even today is called Wipro GE. So <laughs> it is Wipro's joint venture with G Healthcare, or what was called G Medical Systems then, to manufacture cell service medical diagnostic equipment. It was only medical diagnostic equipment. Of course, the range of equipment and uh, products has broadened substantially in the past 30 odd years. So while it is a part of this relatively larger company, on one side, Wipro in India, and of course, the huge behemoth GE globally, in itself, that business was like a startup. Hmm. So experience was really startup experience. And I, mean, I remember the second day, the first, you know, so I have this, I'm this engineer from a very good engineering college and I have this MBA from one of the best business schools in the country. And the second day of my job or second, third, 10th, 20th, 50th day of my job, every morning I'll go to the office and I'll take out the checks that had to be deposited and I'll write the deposit slips and I'll take those checks, 10, 15, 20 of them. And I remember I'll go to what was called Manipal Center here in Bangalore. Yeah. Scooter. And... Uh, Go to uh, go there, and there used to be Hong Kong Bank at that point in time there, Hong Kong HSBC. So I'll stand in the queue and deposit, and mm. I'm thinking, what is this going on? You know, I'm like I'm supposed to be this fancy MBA. Right. <laughs> I should be doing strategy, and here I am depositing checks. But then you know that's the wonder of a sort of a startup business. So on one mm. hand, I was depositing checks and doing this stuff, but right. then um, everything else we were doing. So you know, really. 
what you did was really left to your imagination. Hmm. There was no limit. So you could right. do this, you could do that, you could get into that, get into that. And it's just ex- exhilarating. It was this absolutely wonderful experience those first years. And which year was this? This is 1993, 94, 95, 96. So the traffic in Bangalore wouldn't have been as notorious for you to get from Whitefield to Manipal Center. Oh, no, 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 not at all. You know, I used to live in Jeevan Bhimanagar. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeevan Bhimanagar. And uh, I used to go from, so first few years in Jeevan Bhimanagar, then Defense Colony. And I would go there from there to Whitefield. It was nothing. (laughs) <laughs> like there was there was nothing i you know when we start when we set up the office first the factory and then our office in whitefield there was absolutely nothing there was this old refrigerator factory that was there it was called bpl refrigeration at that mm-hmm. point in time and then there was something called molex cables that came up but there was nothing of course there was no itpl there was nothing at all i mean in fact the road today that connects, uh, that passes in front of IDPL and connects through KR Puram into the city, which essentially tracks the metro, that mm. road did not exist. Yeah. So we had to go uh, in front of old airport, through that route, uh, along the airport wall, and through Marathalli, etc. Right? So this is incredible. So yeah, it's a long time ago. It's 30 years ago. The population of Bangalore was, I think, uh, 3 million or something now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the metro lines didn't exist. So MG Road was this like this big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing existed. That's a, you know, it's a good proxy, right? I mean, uh, if I'm remembering right, the 91 population of Bangalore was roughly 3 million. Hmm. Right, roughly 2.7 million or 3 million or something like that. 91 population. And uh, we are near about uh, 13, 14 million now. So later in the early 2000s, Mr. Behar moved from Wipro GE to the Wipro corporate office and reported directly to Mr. Azim Premji. It was around the same time that Mr. Premji decided to give away a significant portion of his personal wealth as philanthropy to the Azim Premji Foundation. Mr. Behar was involved with the foundation from the outside initially and it was around 2008-2009 following a mutual decision by him and Mr. Azim Premji that he moved to the foundation. Then there was no looking back. This is how he explains the career shift. I was CEO of Wipro Infrastructure Engineering, right? Um, I'm happy to do it. I enjoy doing it, you know. Uh, however, I, it was by then becoming clearer and clearer to me that I did not necessarily see my life and future there. So mm-hmm. maybe that's the first time that I started thinking about what did I uh, maybe wanted to do through my life. And I say it slightly tentatively because, you know, it was never... I, even then it was not as though oh I want to do this so I will leave this it was well you know, I mean if this is what I've got to do I'll do it I like doing it I'll enjoy it I'll do it to the best of my abilities hmm. but if I really look at the long term is this what I want to do right and so I think that was the thing that going on my that was going in my head right. and uh, I mean because Mr. Premji and I had worked so closely together and I had been responsible for social initiatives or the corporation for so many years I think it was quite clear to him that over a period of time, my interests lay more in this direction than in mm. running the business, right? Right. So, at some point in time, he asked me. So, I said, yeah, sure. What makes the book so interesting is that, okay, it has over 100, uh, a compilation of over 100 of these uh, stories. Uh these stories are extremely engaging, extremely interesting. Uh, they they give you a glimpse of what uh, schooling in or education in the most rural, remote part of the country is like. And uh, mostly for for 
many people uh, rural education or government school education often gets a bad rap right uh, but uh, for but through your stories i think there is a, there is a lot of positivity and also there is a lot of uh, i mean there's a lot of perspective on how these opinions can be wrong and often uh, half baked in that sense so yes. could you talk about uh, these stories that you encountered some of these stories and uh, the pers- perspective of uh, education in in india particularly rural india that they gave you in the end it's a big question <laughs> <laughs> it's a very big question you will hear people saying that oh, the quality of education has deteriorated over the past 30 40 years right yeah no what does it mean what does it mean what do you mean by quality of education is deteriorated over the past 30 40 years right are you saying that the most privileged schools that were there to are there that are there today are you saying that the most privileged school today are worse than the most privileged schools 40 years ago are you saying that i don't know i don't think so you will say that <laughs> are you saying that uh, the average school today the average school that teaches the kind of children that we are talking about that is worse than the average school of 40 years ago yes but why is that so hmm. because the average school of today which was not it was not there 40 years ago <laughs> it was not there so 40 years ago the children who lived in the kind of poverty that they live today they did not go to school right hmm. so what's happened is that over the past 40 years you got pretty much all kids from almost every manner of dire poverty coming into school that was not there the phenomena was not there right earlier and therefore you're saying that oh they're not learning as well as well as who as well as the lower middle class children or middle class children who were going to school 40 years ago Hmm. now we know the circumstances of life of children which includes nutrition which includes social support which includes home resources they have dramatic impact on the learning of children so essentially what you have is a situation today here where kids from poverty are going to schools they are learning whatever they are learning right it's not what we want they should learn much better we should do everything to make them learn much better no question about that but why are you comparing it to a middle class kid who used to go to school in 1970 of course they're not learning as well and it's not because it's not because the schools are better or worse it's because where they come from mm. right so what i'm saying is that these kind of you know what you i think said half baked it's not even half baked you know 1% baked ideas <laughs> that are there which are popular narratives that so now the thing is that what happened is that the more i started traveling and you know you talked about my father and you talked about my father once directly and once you know obliquely obliquely because when i said i grew up and therefore i am grew up in that world and that's where i am because of, that's my because of my father but my father i remember he used to say one more thing and uh, i don't know whether you understand hindi or not yeah. uh, but he used to say ki मौके पे जाके देखना पड़ता है मौके पे जाके देखना 
Yeah. How deep is the disconnect between those who are in positions of power because of, you know, they are in government or because of wealth or because of social status and the reality on the ground? How mm-hmm. vast is that difference? How vast is that understanding? And uh, uh, I mean, aside for it, from aside from it, from also that it's unfair and unjust and disheartening and demotivating, which it is, also it's misguiding the country. Okay. Right, because if if you have a misunderstanding of what is the reality on the ground, how mm. will you do the right things to improve? Right. You know, it's only when you do not understand that the government school teachers a very large number of government school teachers do a good job. Hmm. Only when you understand that, will you actually stop this weird idea that somehow the solution to India's school education problem is to have more private schools. Hmm. And private schools do a shoddy job. Yeah. Private schools are run as commercial establishments. They have no interest in their children learning. Hmm. Right? And when I'm saying that, of course, there are lots of good private schools. I'm not one should not in a country of our size and in the number of private schools that we have some, we have wonderful private schools, people who are really committed to education to public spirit, et cetera. But the vast majority of private schools, unfortunately in our country have no interest in education. Right. And you don't understand that because you've got some notion sitting at a distance, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you've read the book, you would have noticed that one of the most, one of the absolutely consistent refrains from all teachers or all people that I met who, to my mind, were doing this incredible thing. And I would ask them, how do you do it? Why do you do it? I mean, why do you, why do you cycle 14 kilometers, you know, from one school to the other, right? 14 kilometers in the sun, you cycle one school to the other because that other, other school doesn't have a teacher and you mm-hmm. don't want a school to shut down. So you teach morning to afternoon in one school, then cycle 14 kilometers in the, in the, in the blazing sun of uh, Rajasthan and go to the second school and teach there like a second shift. Why do you do it? Right? So this kind of stuff I'll, I'll encounter all the time. And I'll ask them, why do you do it? Why, why, why? And you know, <laughs> it took me a while to understand it. It's only I or people like me who mm-hmm. see this as some kind of a miracle. Their mm-hmm. approach is, well, we're doing our job. Yeah. You know, I mean, we do it the right way, don't we? I mean, those kids, you know, what else do they have? You know, I mean, I, if I don't do this, then what will happen to them? So I should do whatever I can, shouldn't I? Hmm. You know, that's the kind of matter of fact. Uh, you know, that really is what I think makes this thing just extraordinary. You know, I mean, how they're just ordinary people. You know, you don't need to be, you know, somebody truly remarkable, a once in a lifetime. Uh, sort of an intervention. You just are just ordinary people going about their lives with, you know, with just a sense of purpose, with some sense of duty, with uh, with a certain sense of empathy, and that's all. Just the average decent human being. Right. And right. they just do miracles, absolute miracles. Right. And and how can we start to bridge this gap that you mentioned among people with power, people with decision-making capacity, people with means, uh, and bridge this gap so that they, they reach the people on the ground, the teachers on the ground, or the children there? Well, I think the there is, like any other such thing, there is no simple one solution. Part of it is that, uh, part of it is that people like me... Uh, and I have tried to do whatever I can, people like me should be conscious of this, right? So uh, should be very conscious of this. And what 
from a structural perspective, I think, from a structural perspective, and I say structural, that means in policies, in uh, uh, in our academic research and in teaching. So if, if you take the structure of how our country thinks about itself and its development or its progress and change, I think the big question to ask is how do you integrate the priorities, the concerns, the understanding of the ground and the front line. So if you keep asking yourself this question, uh, you know, that uh, what is it that is really required on the ground? What is the reality of the ground? How do we enable and grow the capacities in the ground and the ground or the front line, whichever word you choose? I think that will make a lot of difference. Right. How do you view your own contributions uh, to this field? As in Anurag Bihar? Yeah. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing. <laughs> Can't be just that. No, 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 no. It's absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay, all right. If you say so. Thank you so much, Mr. Bihar. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. So that, listeners, was Anurag Bihar, CEO of the Azim Premji Foundation. I hope you liked the episode. This is Divya Shekhar signing off. See you next time. <laughs>